1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. This is what we do every week. Uh, someone said college students are back in town. Uh, what are you going to preach on? I'm going to preach on 1 Samuel because that's what we've been doing for a long time. And this is just what we do here uh, you want to know what, what we do during this time? We open up a book of the Bible, and we work through it verse by verse. And we're in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel. I'm just going to read uh, verse 13 to begin our time, and then we'll look at the whole chapter together. If you would, stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Verse 13. And Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord worked salvation in Israel. Oh God, I pray that we would feel the gospel in that verse, that in Christ, today, not a man shall be put to death if they are in Christ, because in Christ you have worked salvation. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Maybe seat it. Well, it was a Washington, D.C. trip. I was in middle school. I was in eighth grade, and I was introduced to some really bad rap music. Now, when I say bad rap music, I'm not talking about the quality of the music. It was bad. I should not have been listening to it. But I was alone in a room with four other middle schoolers for a week, and you know how sin is. You... You, you do something and you don't even know why you do it. You just know it's wrong and so you think it's cool and that's what you do for the week. And, uh, and so that's what we did. We listened to some really bad rap music. I'm not even going to give you names of the people because I don't want you Googling. I don't want you to even know what entered my ears that week. But as we, I remember as we got off the Greyhound bus back in Lewisburg, Tennessee, I remember my friend handing me the cassette tape that we had listened to that week. And I remember looking at him, why are you giving this to me? And he's like, I can't take this home with me. <laughs> and so I did. I took this cassette home and it was there hiding in my bedroom. And one day I thought my mom was not at home. And I thought, I'm going to listen to that music. And I put it in my really cool multicolored boom box. Some of you know what that is. Cassette tapes were played in boom boxes. And you carried them on your shoulder. <laughs> now it's these sort of uh, Bluetooth speakers. This was our Bluetooth speaker. And I remember there were just a couple lyrics that came from the speakers on the boom box. And there stood my mother with the fire of Hades in her eyes. And I don't remember seeing her so angry ever and ever since. And I, I just remember uh, her being so mad and so disappointed. And she grabbed my boombox. She took it out. She, she took the cassette tape and she ripped it to shreds. And this should never be played within in my house or anywhere and just went crazy. She, she said, where did you get this? And I told her, because at that moment, I was so angry with my friend for giving me the tape, and she called his mom, and we were in so much trouble. And I remember being, being so embarrassed. Like, why did, I remember asking my mom, why did you do this? And, and even now, the, the graphic image of those lyrics 
and my mother standing in the same room with those things playing. And, and, and from that moment, I could never listen to such things ever again. It did something to me just seeing her in the presence of such evil that, that I could never think of listening to such stuff again. And I remember being so embarrassed. And I remember her saying to me over and over, it's not me you should be embarrassed of. I didn't do anything wrong. It's you. It's this filth you should be embarrassed of. And, and I've tried that as a dad when there are things that, that are a little iffy that my kids want to, to watch. I'll say, okay, let's watch it together just to see if it's something that, that you're okay with me sitting here watching this with you, then let's go right ahead. Or if there's something they're listening to, and, and I suspect the lyrics are a little off color, I'll say, okay, let me sing along with you. Let's sing this together. <laughs> and it exposes the sin. It exposes wickedness. And, and it's the kind of thing that we see in 1 Samuel. God shows up. In the midst of horrible brutality, bloodshed, violence. And so often we read our Old Testament and we see God doing such things and we, we, we look at, we, we say, what are you doing here? Why are you in the presence of such evil? Why do you command such things often in the Old Testament? And, and for many of us, we look at God and we're embarrassed that he would even associate himself with such things. I mean, the God of the Old Testament sometimes is described as this, this God who is bloodthirsty and he's out for war, but the New Testament is different. And so we read the Old Testament and we say, God, you shouldn't show up in such death. And yet God is saying the same thing to us in chapters like 1 Samuel in very graphic, too mature for TV ways. He, he, he is saying, it's not me you should be embarrassed of, it's your sin. And, and in such violence as we'll look at today, that's exactly what God is saying. It's not me, this is what your sin has caused. And my presence in a world of death often evokes justice, which means violence. And what God is saying to us is, this is embarrassing at times. What sin has caused in the world. In chapter 11, God is uh, still painting this R-rated picture of Israel's sin. We've seen it throughout. Israel is a people who they do what is right in their own eyes. They, that has been described of them in the book of Judges. And we get to 1 Samuel and it's how is God going to solve this problem of such wickedness where everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. And God raises up a prophet boy named Samuel. And he lives in the temple. And he is a picture of the word of God that, that is spoken to the people of God. But he's also a picture of the priest who serves on behalf of the people of God. And what we've seen throughout 1 Samuel over and over, Samuel the prophet speaking and preaching the word of God leads Israel in repentance over and over. They confess their sin before the word of God and they repent of their sin before this prophet priest of God. But their sin just sort of overhangs the book. And in various ways, in different chapters, God is trying to explain it to him. He's trying to show up and he, he's trying to say, this is what your sin looks like. Isn't it embarrassing? 
And the main sin of 1 Samuel is the sin of Israel choosing a king like the nations. God is supposed to be their king. He rules on their behalf. But they have pestered God for a king like the nations. We want a king that fights our battles. Just like the Philistines. Just like the Ammonites. Just like all the other nations. They have a king who sits on a throne and rules and fights their nations. They have a warrior king. God, you're not good enough to be that king for us. Even though God has a track record of wiping out nations on their behalf. They want a king like the nations. And we've seen God finally says, okay, I'll give you a king. And he picks this farm boy named Saul. And Samuel finds Saul who is out chasing his father's donkeys. And and, and Saul has no intentions of being a leader. He has no intentions of being a ruler. Actually, we've seen in the last few chapters, he's very passive about it. Even at his commencement ceremony, Saul is hiding in some storage units. He doesn't even want to be a part of what God has called him to do. And he's very passive. And yet over and over, God is saying, this is your king, and I'm going to use him to defeat the Philistines. But, but that's kind of the problem when we get to chapter 11. The Philistines are still in the land, and Saul is king. And the question is, what are you going to do about our enemy, Saul? And we see in verse 1 of chapter 11, then Nahash, the Ammonite. Nahash means snake. And here is this leader of the Ammonites. And this was a group of descendants from Lot through incest. And they are known throughout the Bible traditionally as enemies of God. They're always in that list of ites, the Philistines. And then you have all of the ites, the Amorites. And you have the Ammonites and the Malachites, the Israelites, enemies. The Ammonites were a part of their enemies. And notice the text continues. This Ammonite king, this Ammonite leader, he went in and he besieged Jabesh-Gilead. Now, this was a place that was made up of, of three tribes of Israel. You had Reuben, and you had Gad, and you had Manasseh in this area. And, and, and throughout the Bible, they're actually sort of painted as a rogue group of tribes. Israel, when they put on trial the tribe of Benjamite for racial violence... This group of people had nothing to do with it. They said, we're not going to be a part of that. And they did not fight for Israel at certain times. And Israel did not fight for them. And now you have the Ammonites that have overtaken this robe tribes in Jabesh-Gilead. Notice, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Notice the temptation. This pagan king overtakes their land And they say, hold on, let us make peace with you. We will serve you. And here there is no thought of Saul. All all before them is a pagan king who is going to take their life. And they say, no, 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 let's make peace. Let's surrender our allegiance to you. What kind of treaty will you make with us? Notice verse 2. Nahash the snake, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel. I won't kill you. I I won't take over your land. I'll let you live in the land. But here's the deal. You have to be blind. Not, not, Not totally blind. You can still farm 
and you can still make commerce for me, but you won't be able to defend yourself in battle because you won't have one of your eyes. And you will be known throughout all of Israel as those who, who swore their allegiance to a pagan king. And the sign will be that you will be blind in your right eye. Notice verse 3. And the elders of Jabesh said, no way. That never. That's not what they said. Verse 3. Give us seven days respite. Let us think about it. Let, let us think about the deal that's on the table. Do we have a better option and let us send out messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves over to you. Now, what's going on there? But there is no thought of Saul, who is their king, who God promised is your king who's going to defeat your enemies. It's as if he does not exist at this point. Send out messengers throughout all of Israel. Find someone to save us. We don't know if there's anyone to save us. And if there's not, we will give ourselves to you. And Nahash agrees to this. You see, he knows this rogue people group. And he's not thinking that Israel is going to fight for them. Or anyone in Israel is going to fight for this people group. Notice verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, Saul's homeland where he's working, they reported the matter in the ears of the people. And all the people whelped. And so this bad news begins to move through Saul's hometown. And people are weeping and they're crying. And they're in despair here. And we see a picture here of exactly what is going on in the world in which we live in. We live in a world where there is a Nahash behind the Nahash, a snake behind the snake. You see, the Bible describes Satan as the God of this world, the ruler of this age, meaning for a time he has limited power in this world and God has allowed him to besiege, to take over the world. And when Adam in the garden made a peace treaty with sin, Adam said it would be better to sin than to serve God as king. Is there, is there really a king? And Adam takes the fruit and he bites into the fruit and he disobeys God. And death moves into the world. And there is oppression. And we live in this world where there, this Nahash behind the Nahash rules. And we look around and some of us are saying the same thing the Israelites are saying. We need a hero we need a king. You, you open up Twitter and you look at Fox News and you see racial injustice. You, you, this week, some of you are going to go to the funeral home and you're going to stand around with friends that you went to high school with and you're going to talk about things that happened 40 years ago as one of your friends lay in a box in front of you. And you fill a pagan king's rule in this world. And the temptation is to say, let us find somebody to save us. Is there anyone to save us? And some of you believe there's not. Some of you are in the same sort of despair and agony because you believe there is no one to save you. And many of us here today have made this peace treaty with sin because you believe there's nothing and no one better to save you. Peace treaties with sin. Peace treaties with pagan rulers. That's exactly what's going on here. And that's how some of you live your life. 
Because you don't believe there's a king and you don't believe there's anything better and so you've made peace with your sin. Some of you do it this way. You're so used to just using your tongue however you want to. And you say, that's just the way that I am. And you've made a peace treaty with sin. You're gouging your eyes out with sin. You can't see anything that's better. Some of you, people have warned you about relationships in your life. They have said, this is not good for you. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't pursue this. Some of you have, some of you have been confronted about hidden sin, things on your private browser, on your iPhone. And yet you are making peace with those things because you don't believe Jesus is better. God had appointed a king, Saul, to rescue his people. And they are living as if Saul doesn't even exist. They are living as if there is not a king in Israel. And many of you are doing the same thing today. When Jesus has been obliterated on a cross for you, he has been raised from the dead, and he's not seated in some physical place in Israel. He is at the right hand of God, and you are searching, and you are longing, and you are in despair for a king. And God is saying, I've given you my king. And notice verse 5, in the face of such despair... Now behold, there's this transition here to Saul. You have the pagan king, you have uh, oppression, you have despair, and then there's Saul. Okay, we knew there was a king. What have you been doing, Saul? You ready to go to battle? No, look, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And we've seen over and over in the story, this is just sort of Saul's nature. Sometimes you read 1 Samuel and you want to grab Saul and go, Don't you know you're the king? You're still worried about your dad's donkeys. You're out in the field with oxen. You're hiding from people. You have no idea what's going on in Israel. Notice the text continues. What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? He's he's aloof. He's aloof to the nation he's supposed to be ruling over. And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And notice what happens, verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And notice the transition here. Saul is this passive farm boy, just ignorant of the things going on in the world, the nation he's supposed to be ruling over. But notice the Spirit rushes upon him. The Spirit moves upon him. And when he heard these words, notice what happens. His anger was greatly kindled. This act of the Spirit throughout the Bible, it's it's described here as rushing upon Saul. In the book of Judges, that happened over and over. You have deliverers in the book of Judges who rescue the people of God. And as they do so, they do so by the power of God. They are empowered for moments of rescue and war and deliverance. And that's what the Spirit is doing here with Saul. Rushes upon him. And in some sense, Saul turns into this super judge. He's not just a judge, a deliverer. He is a king who, who has been anointed with the Spirit of God. And notice what the Spirit of God does for him. It kindles his anger. It, it brings out this righteous indignation. You have this passive farm boy who now is this king full of anger. And what we see here is jealousy. A a lot of times we think about the word jealousy and it has this negative connotation. We think about 
being jealous of someone's football team when they're winning and they say something bad and you say, well, you're just jealous. You're just jealous. You're just jealous of my new car. Or, or you think about a jealous husband or an overbearing boyfriend. And, and that's the way we think about jealousy. But here, the Spirit evokes a jealousy within Saul that is good and it is right. When God's people are enduring injustice, we see in the Old Testament, God becomes jealous because he loves them. He also becomes jealous because he hates sin. And so here, the Spirit of God invokes an anger, which is a God-empowered, God-given jealousy for the king. And notice verse 7. Notice what he does. He took a yoke of oxen, and he cut them in pieces, and sent them through all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers. And so the messengers come in, saw people are being oppressed. There's a pagan king. His nickname's Snake. He's taking over. What are we going to do? Saul becomes angry and he turns around to the yoke of oxen standing behind him. And he grabs a sword and he just starts hacking them to pieces. Can you imagine standing in the field with Saul? What is wrong with you? You're cutting the oxen up. Just a few chapters ago, you were so worried about your father's donkeys. I mean, you don't care about the oxen? You are ripping them to shreds. And there's a sign here going on with Saul where he is crucifying his former life to serve the people of God. And he cuts the oxen into pieces. And he says, the messengers have told us of oppression. Well, I'm going to send you back with something else. I'm going to send you back with ox flesh. And I want you to deliver it throughout the whole land. And say this, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel so shall it be done to this, to his oxen. I'm going to destroy your livelihood. I, I'm, going to, I, I'm going to ruin you if you don't come and fight me. Your life will be like these chopped up oxen flesh. And notice the tie between Saul and Samuel, the king and the word of God. This is authoritative word to the people of Israel. You must come and fight with Saul. And there is a sign of warning that those who refuse to fight with Saul will have their life cut to pieces. Notice the text continues, verse 8. And when he mustered them at Bezek. And so this probably went on for a few days, the delivering of Ox flesh in the mailbox. People saying, what is this about? There's a new king. He wants to introduce himself to you. Bloody ox flesh. And if you don't come fight with him, your oxen will be cut to pieces. Oh, let's go meet him. <laughs> and so they end up at this place ready for battle. They're going to fight with Saul. And notice the number. The people of Israel were 300,000. And the men of Judah, 30,000. And we also see this split in the nation that's coming. We'll talk about later. But, but there is 330,000 warriors. And they said to the messengers that they, they, who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. 
And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Now notice the shift. There is hopelessness. There is despair. They are under the oppression of a pagan king. They are fearful of having their eyes gouged out. There is no hope. And then all of the sudden, the messengers come. And there are 30, uh, there are 330,000 warriors coming with a king to rescue you. And the text says they were glad. They were relieved. Is this not what the gospel does to us? Sin bears down upon us. We realize what we deserve, the wrath of God. There is no hope. And yet there is a king who is crucified, who is raised, and who is coming to deliver us. And there is gladness. And we see the gospel here. But notice verse 10. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves to you and do whatever seems to you. And so they turned to Nahash and they said, Okay, we want to make a peace treaty with you. And there's some deception here. Tomorrow we'll meet you and you can do whatever you want to with us. And behind the scenes, you can do whatever you want to if you can. But we have 330,000 warriors who are coming with us. And notice the text continues. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in mourning. They sneak in through the night. And then they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of day. Literally, they got there in the morning and before lunchtime, they had wiped out a whole people group to the point that those who survived were so scattered that not two of them were together. They wipe out a whole people group before lunchtime. Bloodshed, war, violence. And, and, And we see here Saul's rule moves from this passive sort of ignorant, foolish farm boy to this bloodthirsty warrior for the people of God. And we, we read that, and that's in the Bible. That, that's in the Bible. Same Bible we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is in. And some of us read these stories and we go, what does that have to do with me? And some people foolishly say, well, you should fight your battles. You you should fight your battles by the Spirit of God. That still doesn't explain the fact that there's bloody ox flesh in the mailbox and a whole people group wiped out. And why would God do that? Why would God be a part of such violence? And it's not just Saul. We could have blamed this on Saul. He's just this bloodthirsty man who lost his temper. No, the Spirit of God invoked such anger. This is God's anger. And this Old Testament violence is leading us to a Roman instrument of torture that says the same thing. What God is saying here is the same thing he says on the cross, and it's that he hates sin. He hates it. He despises sin. He's jealous over our sin, meaning he hates it, he despises it, he wants to rid it from our life, and it takes violence to do so. And if you have a problem with the Old Testament violence, you have a problem with the cross of Christ, the most violent moment in human history. And in both situations, God is saying, I despise your sin. See, a lot of times we think about the cross, and we think the cross is saying to us, I'm okay with your sin. We, we, we think God is saying to us at the cross, you know, you made some mistakes. It's okay, I fixed it. I fixed it for you. 
I'm okay, I'm okay with your sin. No, the cross is saying God absolutely despise our sin. It's an abomination to him. And he's willing to give us signs of bloody oxen and destroyed Ammonites on the battlefield to say, I hate your sin this much. And it leads us to the cross where the, 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 it's not oxen that are ripped to shreds. It's his son that is ripped to shreds. You know what? You know what? Jesus, under the wrath of God, being torn to shreds for the justice of our sin, is saying to you today, he's, he's not saying God is okay with your sin. Your sin's not a big deal. He's saying your sin is this big a deal. And if you refuse my son, you will be ripped to shreds just like he was on the cross. On the cross, Jesus becomes the Ammonite who is wiped out, who is destroyed, who endures justice, who endures God's just wrath for our sin. God's not saying, I'm okay with it. What he is saying about our sin is, your sin is an enemy to me. And if you stay in your sin, you will eternally be an enemy to me. And he takes swords and he takes brutality in the Old Testament to prove it. And he takes a Roman instrument of torture to warn us of that. That's why if you're here today and you want to hate your sin, go to the cross. Sometimes we hate our sin because of the consequences of our sin. We say, I don't want to be this way. I, I, I hate what my sin causes me and others in my life. And and that only lasts so far. You can only have grit with that sort of view of sin to get so far away from sin. You want to really have the power to turn from sin? Stand before the cross and, and see the consequences of sin on the sinless Son of God. You want to make peace with your sin and say, it's, it's not a big deal, it's just who I am. It, a lot of times we say, I know it's sin, but... We, we're walking into a situation and we're going to say things and in our mind we say, I know this is sin, but. We open up our phone and we say, I know this is sin, but. And we make peace with sin. You want to break your treaty with sin? Stand before the cross and see Jesus was not at peace with your sin. The wrath of God bearing down upon him as he screamed out in agony and he suffocated by his own blood. He was not at peace with your sin. You want to you hate your sin? Be reminded of the rage, the infinite wrath of God on the sinless Son of God to move. You want to cut sin from your life? Be reminded that Jesus was cut up for your sin. He was forsaken because of your sin. And that's the picture of violence that we see here. God hates sin. He's jealous. He loves his people, but he hates sin. It's the same message of the cross. But notice we continue, verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Okay, who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Now, that's in a question form, meaning Saul cannot reign over us. Remember last chapter, Who is this man? How can he save us? He shouldn't be our king. You have the detractors there. And so after you've seen 330,000 warriors leave the Ammonites in a bloodbath, the next question is, 
Okay, is, is there anybody else who has a problem with Saul? Because he just proved he's our king. He has wiped our enemies out. And, and if you rejected the bloody ox flesh in the mail, if you didn't send an RSVP to that to come fight with us, let's go find out who they are. And let's go kill them. Notice he says, may we put them to death. Let's just get rid of all those who aren't loyal to Saul. But notice Saul's response, which is a beautiful statement of gospel. Verse 13. Saul said, not a man shall be put to death. And that includes those in Jabesh Gilead, the rogue tribe. That includes the defectors. Those who are still standing on the sidelines saying, should we follow this guy? Can he really save us? Saul says, no one shall be put to death. For God has worked salvation in Israel. God has delivered the whole nation of Israel. And in some sense, it, it sounds gory and it, it sounds horrible. But the Ammonites served as a sacrifice for Israel here. That's what holy war in the Old Testament means. God took out vengeance and justice upon Israel's sin on their enemies. And they fought in a battle. They, they fought with their king so that they may have peace. And they experience peace with their king here. And, and the thought of anyone not being loyal to Saul, let's put them to death. And Saul says, no, a sacrifice has been made. And God has saved us from justice today. Verse 14 then Samuel said to the people of God, come let us go to Gilgal. Now this was a place of significance. This is when Israel entered the promised land. This is where they celebrated God's covenant with them. And it represented God's promises coming to fruition with them. It was a place described as where God rolled away the reproach, the slavery of Egypt. They were no longer slaves in Gilgal, but they were sons of God. And notice he says, all the people went to Gilgal. And they go there to renew the kingdom, the covenant. Remember uh, the last chapter where we talked about God binds himself to us legally in love. And love is a legal commitment that, that I'm bound to you. And God has bound himself to his people. And they go there to remember and renew the covenant and, and, and that they made with Saul before the Lord in Gilgal. And notice how they celebrate the last part of verse 15. There they sacrificed peace offerings. Now, these offerings in Leviticus were offerings that symbolized fellowship. And so they would offer the bull, they would offer the goat, they would offer the lamb. And, and there were peace offerings in the midst, in the, in the beginning uh, part of the temple. And the, the flesh, you would smell it and the smoke would go up. And, and what the people were saying is God accepts us. And they would even take parts of this sacrifice and they would all eat it together to symbolize a fellowship meal before God. Notice, they sacrifice peace offerings before the Lord who accepts them. There's a declaration, we are your people, you are our God. And there Saul and all the men of Israel greatly rejoiced. They're having a fellowship party around the peace offering to say God is with us and he accepts us. But what about the detractors? Because if you're there at the fellowship meal and, and you look across the fellowship hall and you, hey, isn't that the guy who's been talking bad about Saul? What's he doing here? How, how can his family, how can his tribe be a part of this? 
Those folks from Jabesh Gilead, they, they think they can just show up. They, they're the ones that got us into this mess, making alliances with pagan kings. And now they just show up and they, they, they celebrate fellowship. Now, what's the point there? The, the reason they would be so focused on the detractors is because they're missing God's point. God is telling Israel, you are all the detractors. Let's go back a few chapters ago. Give us a king like the nations. And I haven't turned you away. I haven't wiped you out. I still have fellowship with you. All of Israel detracted from God. All of Israel rebelled against God. And here in chapter 11, God has painted a graphic picture of their sin and his jealousy. A graphic picture. Bloody ox flesh. The destruction of the Ammonites. He's painted a graphic picture. This is what your sin looks like. And now he's painted a picture of fellowship. Despite your rejection of me, just like their rejection of Saul, Saul says, today no man shall die. I'm saying to all of Israel, despite your rejection of me, none of you should die. Justice has been performed on another, and therefore you can have fellowship. You see, if you want to understand the gravity of your sin and rebellion, if today you're here and you go, a lot of times in our mind when we think about our sin, we think about that thing that I struggle the most with. And, and that comes into your mind right now. Whatever it is, that, that, that picture that sort of is the theme of your rejection of God. And, he, and in your gut you say, that's horrible. I can't believe I'm that way. That, those, that time in your life where you just said, I'm going to do whatever I want to. The walk of shames. The getting up the next morning and your head is splitting wide open. And you say, I can't believe I would do that. Some of us, when we think about our rebellion, we think about those moments, we think about those times, we think about those specific sins, and we think, if I can just work up and, and, and get angry at the sin, if I can just work up and be broken by that sin, th th then I could move from it. Now, there's a worse picture of your sin than even what you can pop into your mind right now. And it's the sinless son of God under the wrath of God. And here's the thing. If you have a problem with violence, the most loving act in human history was also the most violent act in human history. The most violent act in human history was the most loving act in human history. Because God infinitely loved you to infinitely endure the violence you deserve for your sin. And you can't just picture that in your mind enough to get away from your sin. You have to remember, God is jealous for me. He loves me. He hates my sin enough to endure my sin on the cross, the wrath of God, because he loves me. You see, the reality is Jesus is not indifferent about the peace treaty you have made with Satan. He's not indifferent about it. And he's not going to stand passively by while you gouge your eyes out with sin, acting as if there is nothing better. No, he proves a jealous love for you that is better than any sin you could chase after. 
Any moment, any experience that you could have in this life and you could say, that fills the void. That, that's what I need. Anything that you would lie and deceive and hurt others for. Any of that. He. He's not passive about it. He endures it. And he suffers for it. And he says to you today, because of the cross, there is peace at the table for the defectors. Isn't that amazing? You see, Israel gathered around a peace offering. Can you imagine this party? Hundreds of thousands of people. And they would look upon the, the tent where they would worship. They would see the smoke. There would be enough sacrifice where the flesh of animals would enter their nostrils. And, and as some of them walked around and shook hands and, oh, you're from this tribe, you're from there. And isn't it great to gather here and celebrate victory? They would look down at their shoes, sandals, and see blood, the blood of their enemies. And there's a whole scene that is marked by violence that represents God's jealousy for them. I hate your sin this much, but I love you this much that I will endure the violence for your sin. And you know what we get to do today? We get to celebrate the violence that Jesus endured for us. We get to come to a table today. We get to gather around the Lord's table and we get to celebrate a violent act. We're gonna put into our mouth bread and we're gonna bite down upon it. And we're gonna remember that Jesus Christ was violently crushed for us because he loves us. We're gonna put juice in our mouth and we're gonna feel it go down our throats and we're going to remember that the blood of Jesus filled up in his throat and spilled out for us because he loves us. Because he loves us. It's not a pretty picture. It's embarrassing at times. It's awkward. But it declares the jealous love of God for us. As the men come forward, let's prepare to take the Lord's table.